0: Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning into Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price here, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we are celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies for business. Well, it's the first Monday of the month, and that's when we get to hear from Don Cooper, the sales heretic. We hear him in the Breakthrough Tip, which is a short tip at the top of the show where you can go take action on that information right now. Our featured interview today is with David Marquette, the author of Turn Around the Ship, a true story of turning followers into leaders. Our featured interview is a 35-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day, allowing you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Then we wrap up this first Monday with our Breakthrough Bite with Jeff Shuey on the intersection between people and technology. Our Breakthrough Bite is a 10-minute segment that's not as long as our deep dive and not as short as our Breakthrough Tips, allowing us to meet all the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio, and if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. That's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. You know, every week we have a blog post we give you access to that has the frame for the conversation for each episode. And that means that any and everything that we talk about today, things we may reference to as resources, we link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Don, David, Jeff, or myself, Make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question. Engage us in conversation. And, of course, it makes sense for your business. Hire us. Now it's time for us to go into our breakthrough tip with Don Cooper, the Sales Heritage, for a reminder on what can interfere with our sales success.
0: Well, what I want to share with everybody is – something that's been close on my mind recently because I've been going through it lately and not for the first time in my life. There are times that we all go through in which it seems like everything is going wrong. And that might be caused first by a trigger event, something like losing a job or getting a divorce or the loss of a loved one, as in my case. And it seems like nothing is working right. Everything is going to hell. And the challenge that we as entrepreneurs have is that it is almost impossible to sell when you're in a negative mindset. When you are frustrated and angry and, and depressed and all of that, it is almost impossible to sell. You really need a positive mindset to sell effectively. And in fact, to do everything else in your business effectively. The challenge is how do you get back into that positive mindset when it seems that there's nothing positive in your life? So I've been through this more than once, and I want to share with you and your listeners who either have been through something like this, are going through it right now, or will at some point in the future. Here's what you do. Everything around you seems to be going to hell. First, focus on what you can do. Understand that a lot of life is simply out of your control. You can't control the weather. You can't control other people. You can't control profits and and clients. You can't control much of anything except your attitudes and your actions. So focus on what you can take charge of in your life to get yourself back on a stronger, more positive path. Can you watch what you eat? Can you exercise? Can you... Get in the job somewhere. Can you move? What can you do to bring more positivity into your life? Second, make a list of what you've survived so far in your life. Sometimes when it seems like the entire world is crumbling around us, we start to get really frustrated and even beyond frustrated and and depressed and start thinking that we're never going to get through this. The fact is you've gone through a lot in your life already. Make a list of the things that have gone wrong that you've overcome. What are the challenges you've gotten past and succeeded despite? I think back often to my childhood and the abuse that I suffered. I had a very abusive childhood at the hands of my mother. And I remind myself, if I survive that, I can survive anything. Get support from your friends and your colleagues. Do not be ashamed or embarrassed to ask for help. I've spent much of the last eight months out here in Washington, D.C. taking care of my father as he battled cancer. And I frequently would post on Facebook and call and text friends, and they rallied for me and they gave me an immense amount of support. I'm not sure if I could have made it through these past eight months if it hadn't been for all of them. Often we feel the need to hide our sufferings and to not let other people know how badly things are in our world because we feel compelled to present a positive face. Oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm great, no problems, no worries. When behind the scenes, we're suffering. Your friends want to help. Let them know that they can and let them know how. Because your friends want to help you get through these tough times. So open up to them. Ask for support. Let them know what's going on. You'll be amazed at how much of a difference your friends can make in your life and your business. Fourth, read and or listen to inspirational messages. I make the point to my clients that I am not a motivational speaker. Speak on sales. I do have a lot of friends, though, who are motivational speakers, inspirational speakers, and they're amazing. And... Their word, their ideas have made a huge impact on my life. I know they've made impacts on the lives of thousands, if not millions, of people around the world. So go to your local library, your local bookstore, and get books, get CDs. Go to the Internet and find books, articles, um, audio downloads, podcasts from some of these tremendous speakers who have great ideas and a lot of experience with these things that can help remind you of how great you are and give you ideas and inspiration to help you through these difficult times. Fifth, talk with someone. Talk with a mentor. Talk with a therapist or counselor. Talk with a religious figure if you are of the religious persuasion. Talking to somebody who is above you, beyond you in terms of your experience, can really help because they can offer you different perspectives. They can offer you advice. Sometimes they can just listen, which can be very therapeutic. Find somebody in your life that you can go to. It may be a coach. It may be somebody that you have to hire, like a, like a consultant or a counselor. It may be a therapist you've already been going to. Maybe you need a new therapist. Uh, if you haven't been to your church in a long time, maybe it's time to go back. If you have been going for a long time without getting in anywhere, maybe time to go to a different one or look for other alternatives. People often will find religion or they'll discard their religion altogether in a crisis because we are looking for something to help us get through. And if your religion helps you do that, by all means, dive into it. If it's not, find something else because you need things in your life that help you and move you in the right direction. And the sixth thing that you can do. Is see a doctor. Because if you have been dealing with catastrophe after catastrophe, you may be suffering from depression. Depression isn't sadness. Depression isn't being mentally weak. Depression is a physical illness. And you'd be amazed at how many people you know have dealt with it. Depression is hard to understand if you haven't been through it. And sometimes you can have it and not even realize it. That's certainly the case in my case. I didn't realize I had depression until I was talking with a whole bunch of friends about what I was going through, and they said, yeah, that's depression. I've been through it. I was astounded how many people I knew had experienced depression. It is extremely common, but there's still a stigma about it. So go see your doctor, get tested, because if you have depression, there are all kinds of treatments, and it may simply be a chemical imbalance in your brain. If that's the case, it can be corrected, and that alone can get you back on a positive path. It can get you thinking better, feeling better, and then acting better. There are so many things you can't control, but your health, to a large extent, is one that you can But you have to make the effort. You need to go to your doctor, get checked out, and while you're there, check for anything else that's wrong with you because you might have any other physical ailment that's also hurting you in some way. So if your world seems to be crashing around you, understand that you're not alone. Almost everybody has experienced that at one time or another in their lives. So focus on what you can do. Make a list of what you've survived so far. Ask for support from your friends. Read and listen to inspirational messages. Talk with a mentor, therapist, or religious figure. And see a doctor. Those are six things that you can do to get yourself back on a positive path. And you need to be on that path in order to sell in order to do business, in order to live.
1: Well, in our last episode, we talked with Rajiv Parishwarya about the open-source leadership. Now, a big company that's been instrumental in leading both internal and externally is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead in being more strategic in how you connect and serve your customers? Today's consumer has changed the name of buying for business no matter what industry you sit. And it's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. And this is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached to help them grow their business and their revenues. Growth Hacking CMOs are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing clients how to structure their execution with precision. Defining what's important to customers today and using analytics to see how customers are making their buying decisions is the savvy way to prepare for their future needs and to stay relevant. And when you know what's valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcomed. Whether you have 10,000 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey map saves you time, money, and headaches. It is your sweet In business. So make sure you do connect and discover how GrowthHackingCMO.com can help you do that this last quarter of 2017. Now, before we start our featured interview, remember we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Let me share a little bit about our next guest. David Marquette is an expert on leadership and organizational design. A former nuclear submarine commander, the author of Amazon's number one bestseller, Turn the Ship Around and Turn Your Ship Around. David Marquette imagines a workplace where everyone engages and contributes their full intellectual capacity. A place where people are healthier and happier because they have more control over their workplace where everyone is a leader. Please join me as we welcome David to Breakthrough Radio. How are you doing today, David?
2: I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me on your show.
1: You bet. You know, one of the things that I discovered as I was reading your book, Turn the Ship Around, is I found myself nodding yes a lot and asking myself, why do we make leadership so complicated?
2: (laughs) Well, uh, well, I think as it all starts, we have the wrong idea of what leadership is. And, uh, you know, leadership is, uh, traditionally we think of it, it's about telling people what to do, getting them to follow us, the person. And we got to wrap up all this aura because then we can hire consultants to sort of demystify the thing. And I think it's really a lot simpler than that.
1: Mm. You know, it. One, I want to compliment you. I love the brilliant questions you put at the end of each chapter. (laughs) I guess maybe because I ask people questions for a living. It's one of my favorite things when I see it really well (laughs) done.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that was the last thing. My publisher was like, hey, you need to do this. I was like, really? And like, yeah. So sometimes you just need to follow the advice of the experts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) totally agree. And it's funny with, you know, most people might want to start off with the story, but I found myself turning down the page and going, this is where we need to start the conversation. And it was right in the middle of the book with at the end of the chapter, mistakes just happen, And with hmm. the question that said, how effectively do you learn from mistakes? And I thought to myself, boom, that is, is where leadership to me starts from when you can ask yourself, how effectively am I learning from my mistakes? Because how can you be a really good leader if you aren't being self-reflective and self-aware and learning how to lead yourself first?
2: Right. Yeah, so that wraps up a whole bunch of things uh, for me that were really um, insightful. Number one is, I needed, to, um, <laughs> I needed to know when I was not living up to the ideals that I wanted to, and I, I needed to enlist my team in helping me with that. So we had this idea of the yellow card, which was, you know, I tell my team, and I wouldn't focus on everything but just like one particular thing. Like for me, it were things like, uh, you know, listening better, being more empathetic, asking open-ended questions, not telling you what to do, letting you, giving you the chance to solve your own problems, you know, something like that. And, I, and I'd say, hey, look, guys, this week I want to work on listening better. So if you don't feel like I'm doing a good job listening, then I really need you to help point that out to me and show me a yellow card. And, of course, you know, the reason you're not listening is probably because you're under stress or you're tired or you're hungry or maybe, you know, your boss yelled at you or something. And so that, and so that kind of cascades down. And so the yellow card would kind of break me out of that downward spiral Then I'd have to go back and reflect So that was number one. Number two was the way I always thought about it was when when you make a mistake, I always think about it in terms of you paid tuition, like whether it's you made a mistake. And a lot of times when my team would think that they made a mistake, actually the person who made the mistake was me. So if I said, hey, I need you to make a decision about something and I let you make that decision, but I didn't provide all the information that you needed and the clarity of what we were trying to achieve and then the decision maybe was suboptimal – It's easy to blame the person and say, well, you really could have done a a better job with that. But for me, I always was like, well, did I really set them up for success? But the tuition's already been paid. The cost of the mistake has already happened. Why don't we get as much, you know, it's like paying tuition but not going to class. Well, let's go ahead and go to class and see what we learned. And that required us to be very open and honest. And when we held retrospectives and said, hey, what happened? people didn't become all defensive and, and and close down and and feel like they were being under attack. And I, again, I had to work hard to ask questions in a way that I was like, we really just wanna know, Here, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to blame you. Uh, and that took some time because, they, you know, the team had come from a culture where the questions were, uh, then you know, they were gonna be exhibit A and you're in your hanging. Um, but they really had to, uh, it took some time to get past that, but after we did, we got really, really good. And then the sailors would come forward saying, Hey, I made this mistake without even being asked. And, you know, let's, let's fix it, which made us, you know, made us stronger.
1: Well, you bring something up that we hear quite a bit, and that is culture that someone goes into kind of like you did in a situation where it wasn't a safe environment for people to admit their mistakes. And you you just shared that it took a little time to get them there. What can leaders do in order to start building that trust with their people? Because I think no matter actually what's gone on before someone else has been put in a role inside of a company, even when it's gone well, it seems like the, the, the new person who's having to lead is always gonna have hurdles that they're going to have to jump, whether who was there was really horrible or who was there was really great.
2: Yeah. So a couple of really key things there. Number one, you said, how do we make it safe? That is so key. How do we make it safe? Making it safe starts with stop adding stress to your people. So many leaders think their job is, oh, I need to motivate the team. What does that really sound like? Adding stress. I'm going to give them a, t- a tighter deadline. I'm going to hover over them. I'm going to go, you know, schedule a series of meetings so they can update me on how they're doing. Okay. None of that makes it safe. All that just does is add stress. So step one, stop adding stress, help make it safe. Number two, the mindset of the leader is to fix the environment, not people. So if you go into your new job and you say, wow, this person seems really defensive, you could say, you could say, uh, I need to fix them. They need to go to sort of, you know, open the school or, you know, learn how to take a hit school or whatever you want to do. But what, that's not the way leaders think. Leaders say, what is it about this environment? What is it about the way we work here? What is it about what this person has gone through in this company that's making them operate that way? And what can I do to fix it? And and that takes me to number three, which is if you want to have a trusting environment, you've got to be trustworthy. Step one, you gotta be trustworthy. That means you gotta share what you know. You gotta be open, open and vulnerable, and and you've got to stick. And if you say you're committing to do something, you gotta follow through. I'll give you an example. Uh, a big manufacturing company we work with had made a decision at the executive level they're going to close down a plant, and everybody like they all know the plant's going to close down but they don't tell the workers. And they wait till the very last minute, two weeks, two weeks is all they, that's all the heads up they gave the workers. These guys have 30 plants across the planet. Now do you think all what happens to the workers and all, all the other 29 remaining plants? They're like, well, we don't know. I don't know if my job is secure because I'm not gonna know but two weeks in advance before my job goes away. So it raises the level of stress and anxiety and lack of trust everywhere. Now they say, well, if we tell the workers ahead of time, they'll jump ship, they'll do with this, they'll do bad behaviors, whatever it is. Um, That's not my experience. I think if you're honest with people, they'll return that honesty with good behavior. We've seen it in other places where those last uh, couple months at the plant, those are the most productive months ever because if the workers know this plant's gonna be shut down, they stop doing maintenance on the machine. We don't need to shut the machine down, change the oil, if the machine is going to get shut down permanently in two months, right? Let's just keep running the thing, and so those become the most productive months, but not if management is not transparent so um, that is hold this whole issue of trust to me is really it's really so so key, and uh, it starts with making safe focusing on the environment and being transparent.
1: I love that fix the environment and not the people that that seems so simple yet it's something that I think we've all observed people have totally missed the mark on that and it also Mm. brings up the additional question when you talk about honesty um, something that that's kind of fascinating in uh, the chapter where you talk about whatever they tell me to do and you're you're sharing how important it is to have (laughs) psychological ownership for the work and I thought to myself well, you know, those are really great lessons, but how many times do leaders how, – how many times are leaders not really honest with themselves, and then they expect team to be honest with them?
2: Right. Right. So, you know, psychological – like what leader do you have you met in the last one million years that says, oh, no, I don't want people to take ownership – but what happens is the leaders are taking actions every day. They take actions, which which uh, the word I use is poach. We poach their ownership. Um, and then we say, where's your ownership? So, for example, you come to me and you say, hey, I got this project, and I got a choice. We can price it here or we can price it there. And then I say, well, price it here. So I just took a little... Like, how much ownership now do you have over the project? Or you say, we can deliver A, B, C, or A, B, C, and D. And I say, deliver A, B, C, and D. Again, how much ownership do you have? Because now it's my project. And you're just sort of, you know, we turn our people into simply the hands or the, you know, the um, executors of our, quote, you know, brilliant, unquote, ideas. And we really marginalize the most valuable thing which they have, which is, you know, sitting on top of their shoulders. And so it is us who steal the ownership from our people, and then we wonder why they they don't have ownership.
1: So, David, what did you learn when you went on board this nuclear submarine and you're thinking about and you're watching how people are performing? How did – how did you come to the conclusion, and then what kind of steps were you able to think of in order for all of the sailors on board to take ownership of their, what I call their genius or or their brilliance and strength in their job? I mean, that's why they have that role, yet that seems to be something that sometimes management and leaders forget.
2: Right. Well, I had come up through a long history of telling people what to do. Like, the best you could be as a leader is to know it all and tell it all. And uh, what happened was I got shifted at the very last minute to a nuclear-powered submarine to be the captain of a nuclear-powered submarine that I w- wasn't trained for. And so all of a sudden I'm kind of in this very unsettling place where I didn't – like, I looked at the equipment, and I, I knew the basics of submarine, that didn't change. The physics didn't change, but the buttons all changed it was very unsettling and my instinct was to kind of go back to this old way of telling people what to do and I did but I made a mistake I gave an order that couldn't be done and they actually tried to do it even though they knew it couldn't be done this is how powerful these do what you're told environments are and 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 the, your listeners may like be chuckling at that but they probably know places where we all know the leader made a bad decision, but we just say, "Yeah, it's easier just to do what you're told than actually to, you know, speak up." So, I I got my guys together and I was like, "Hey, guys, we we're, we're in deep trouble here. Um, and what are we gonna do?" And and the first reaction for me was, you know, you guys need to speak up, and you guys need to take initiative, and you guys need to do this, and you guys need. So there we go back to, you know, the old style of fixing people. And finally, it was pointed out to me that maybe it was me, right? Because I was abdicating my own behavior, responsibility for my own behavior. We all got to focus on our own behavior. It's ultimately the only thing we can control. So I said, you know what? My job then is going to be to be quiet. That was, that was the first step for me. Just just keep stop from telling people what to do even when they come up and they say what do you want me to do I like um tell me more what do you see what do you think what would you do if i weren't here kind of i would ask them this series of questions i would really even though my every like oh i just gotta tell them what to do i would try and resist that and so the first step is always stop telling people what to do and then what happened was first of all i couldn't like i couldn't because i didn't know all the details but then, even when I learned the details, I saw how powerful it was. Because what happened was, we ended up with 135 active thinking people because they were all thinking. They said, "Well, no one's going to tell me what to do, so I better figure it out on my own, and then communicate that to my boss." And um, yeah, it worked out great. And that's uh, that's why I've kind of become this <laughs> uh, passionate. I almost said annoying, like annoying zealot for giving up control. Leaders have to create the environment where they can give up control. That's the key.
1: Mm. You know, one of the things that stood out to me as you first started sharing that was how you as a leader experienced something very disruptive where you were in a state of uncertainty. And a lot of times what I notice is anytime we're put in that position, we forget that that's actually an opportunity and a blessing for us to be learning how to do something better, but instead we assume it's a negative. How have you been (laughs) able to get your people to embrace uncertainty in a way where they can start looking at it from a perspective of curiosity instead of dread?
2: Yeah, I love that word curiosity. I mean, like, like, uh, hey, all, all breakthroughs start with the word break, right?
1: <laughs>
2: um, yeah. So, so for me, the thing that broke first was my old paradigm of leadership. Like, it just went up on the rocks and just broke in half. And I like I tell people, like, I really I wish that they could learn from my story without having to go through it themselves. And I, I make a two-by-two two matrix for leadership. I said, here's my leadership journey. There's no all tell-all, and know-not and tell-not. And I kind of crossed through all four quadrants, starting with the know-all, tell-all. But then I ended up in what I now call no know, know-it, but don't tell-it. And uh, so, th- so that was my journey. Now, bull, this is going to sound paradoxical. My experience is if you want people to take risk and you want people to embrace uncertainty with, with an air of curiosity as opposed to fear, they need to be coming from a safe and stable place. Too many times I've seen leaders say, oh, the way I'm gonna train my people to embrace uh, uncertainty is to keep throwing them into uncertain situations and to, and, and to kind of be the pro- provocateur who prods them and is challenging them all the time. And what happens is that feels like I'm always being evaluated and assessed and judged, and that doesn't feel good, and it makes basically the whole environment toxic. So instead, the better leaders that I've seen create this sort of feeling of safety and security, like at the home base, okay? this And some people, it's their family, it's their religion, it's work but it's a home base where i can truly be myself i don't i'm not worried about being judged and only when i have that when a, when a, when a event comes to me and throws me in a very uncomfortable place can i be open can i be learning can i get into that learning mindset what you want is to get break people out of a doing and a performing and a an improving mindset into a learning and improving. You wanna move from proving to improving. And I think that only comes from a basis of safety and stability.
1: You know, one of the things that I have found fascinating, David, in having the opportunity to talk with so many brilliant minds like yourself who've written a body of work that then people read and try to absorb and apply and, and put to use in their their life is, I learned, oh, let's see, I guess it was about eight years ago, so very early into breakthrough radio, um, author shared with me that one of their best lessons from their body of work came from a chapter that challenged them in a really unexpected way when they had to start like, you know, getting it out of their head and down on paper. Did you Hmm. have something in your body of work as you were writing out to turn around the ship that did that for you that just kind of unexpectedly challenged you (laughs) as you were getting it out of your head and down on paper?
3: Yeah,
2: for me, it was, it was, it was basically the whole book because what happened was, and, um, so I'm an engineer, right? I'm a nuclear submarine captain. I'm a, a physics major at school. I went into engineering. And so the idea of writing a book was the last thing, uh, I wanted to do, but the the story for me was very powerful and I was getting encouragement um, from my wife in particular, but people around me to, to take the time and write the book and tell the story, which I'm so glad I did. So I start writing the book and there's so many books out there that are, I call them, I came, I saw, I conquered books, right? Like there was a broken institution. I came, I ordered a bunch of great changes. It was all about me, and things got better. Now, that's where the book ends. Now, maybe after the person left, things went back to the way they were. We don't know. So, and I wrote my book six times, and it basically was one of those books, and it just rang hollow with me. And I can't remember what what provoked it, but I was basically in this, I was tired, and I just said, like, F it. And I'm just going to expose the insecurities and the vulnerabilities that were going on in my head. Because up to this point, there was this mask, right? is like, you know, was like this, yeah, be more like me, right? There's this arrogance and this mask. And finally, I was like, no, that's just nonsense. And I finally, I rewrote it then, really trying to uh, expose my fears, my insecurities, my doubts, and just, you know, be the honest leader that I really wanted to be. And only when that only then was I then happy with it. But that was that was even though I like talk about that and I thought I got pretty good at it on a submarine, it was still kind of at a business level, not at a personal level. And so that for me, that was my that was my struggle, that was my um my breakthrough time of was that decision to really be vulnerable.
1: Well, you definitely did a very good job of it. I found myself feeling like I was walking right there with you during yeah. your entire experience <laughs>
2: <laughs> thanks i need it. i wish I wish I'd known that at the time. I needed some friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can totally appreciate that thinking. Well, you know something else that that is kind of fascinating to me and and yet we see uh, company after company make this really simple and common mistake over and over again, and that is they set their their structure, their rewards up for you know everyone who works inside that aren't really in alignment with how they want people to behave now right. Once you've seen this example, you would think everybody would immediately all get together and go, we need to fix this, you know, or ask themselves the question, is this something that we're doing too? Yet this is an area where a lot of companies really, really drag their feet. What kind of advice would you give listeners, especially since a lot of them are leaders, whether it's of teams or their own company, how they can be thinking about rewards in the structure of behaviors that they might want to re examine.
2: Yeah, so uh you know, I think about this proving and improving idea, like the like performance mindset and the learning mindset or the growth mindset. And then I would look at the evaluations, look at our evaluation process. And uh, I think in the simplest mode, because we have to we have to sort of get the work done, the proving part. We don't necessarily need to get the improving part done, at least in the short run. But eventually, we go out of business. So I I almost think there's a sort of two dimensions. You got to get the work done that we're relying on you for, but you got to also dedicate time to learning and improving. I'm always struck by if you go back to the 1999 the first Amazon annual report that Jeff Bezos sent out. And uh, he talks about kind of what they'd achieved and it was um, really, you know, amazing stuff. But then he kind of saves the last paragraph about what they have left to learn. And when I look at documents, I almost have this, um, like I I think about words like learn, um, improve, and I, I think of those as blue words. And I think of words like do, did, sold, achieved as red words. And I look through the document and I say, you know, our, do we have a balance of blue words and red words or is it all red? You know, from, from the annual statement of the CEO to my annual report to uh, a job posting am I, am I couching job postings as to saying, hey, I'm looking for a person who's going to do the following, a red word. And learn the following, blue words, like, these are the things, these are the kind of things that we need you to be learning about while on this job. I don't see that a lot. And then we hire people, and we wonder why they're all stuck in performing mode, and we don't have a learning organization, it's because that's, that's what we advertised for. So, for me, it's about looking at all the sort of manifestations of documentation in the company, and... Are our words matching? You know, if I, if I talk to the senior executives and say, well, what, what do you value here? And they say, well, we value people who learn and get better and take criticism and ask for feedback and, you know, whatever. And then I go and say, read the, read the evaluations. Are, are those
1: matching? Yeah, it's definitely a wake-up call, for sure. Well, you know, there's a question, David, that we asked all the guests who come on Breakthrough Radio that doesn't have anything to do with your area of expertise or, the or you know, the content in the book that you've written. And it took us about, oh, I think two years before we, we finally gave it a, a, a funny little name. We call it The Brain Download. And hmm. it's it's a pretty simple question, yet so many times people want to, like, bathe it and run away with it with multiple answers. So I'm gonna preface this by saying you get one answer. It's the one that first pops into your mind. Don't try to cherry pick out of three, which one was the first (laughs) one. And so here's how it goes. If you have the opportunity to have a brain download, which means that you could understand how someone has made their choices and their decisions, and that someone could be anybody, whether it's from the past, whether they're from the present, or maybe even someone who is from the future, the future. <laughs> who would you want to have that brain download from and why?
2: Well, so I guess I'm cherry picking in my head. Um, for me, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and and I'll, and I'll tell you why. So, so the the person I think I'd really uh, be most interested is. Um, Jesus Christ, the historical figure, because uh, for me, he made some decisions and he talked about things in a way that were really kind of breakthrough for his time, and he epitomized uh, leadership in a big way for me. That tends to be a little bit controversial sometimes because um, it may turn off some people. Some people may get really excited, but others may be like, "Yeah, I don't know. he's a religious guy. You know, what's that have to do with leadership?" Um, I have more traditional, like you know, Winston Churchill or someone like that. I think also, but I think I'd go back if I only had one, um, and that was the name that popped into my head as you were sort of started going into the question. Uh, I'd go back. I'd go back to that from from a leadership and historical perspective.
1: You know, that's really interesting how people are not able to extract their personal feelings around someone or something and just be able to observe it from, as you say, the framework of being a leader. That, that, that's kind of fascinating. Now You've got my mind going in a lot of interesting directions. I'll have to, when we get off the show today, kind of jot those down and see what the lessons are in it. Well, you know, David, yeah, I have to what, tell you.
2: Yeah, go ahead.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Well, I say, I, I'm interested to hear what kind of feedback you get from the listeners, too. I mean, does that seem like an appropriate choice from a leadership perspective? And does, you know, does that, you know, does that sort of, you know, fracture people one way or the other? One of thing things I'm worried about today is we kind of like seems to be like we have this tribalism where, you know, you're either in my tribe or you're not. We have too many tribes. And, yeah. uh, you know, we're not listening to the other side. So I'd, I'd be interested to know i have been interested to know what people think.
1: Well, that definitely would be some very great feedback. And I love how you brought up tribes and, and how people tend to dig their heels in and posture instead of sit in a circle, as my ancestors would say, and listen with an open heart. I want to thank you for coming on Breakthrough Radio today and allowing us to just ask you a lot of really great questions around uh, the content that you've written and turn the ship around, uh, and we really appreciate, that, appreciate the fact that you allowed us to kind of take some deep dives into what you started in the book and, and, and gain an understanding of how we can be applying the information that you shared. So thank you for that.
2: Thank you, and thanks to all listeners out there on Breakthrough Radio.
1: But we know it's time for us to shift into our breakthrough bite segment. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you a question. Have you visited and participated in a startup grind fireside chat yet? I want to encourage you to reach out and find out what's happening in your city or country with startup grind. You're going to find a group of enthusiastic entrepreneurs and investors who are looking to create profitable businesses and affect positive change in the world. And if you're in Houston on Wednesday, December 13th, we're going to dive into what is Pitch a Kid and how can we gain clarity on our pitches from pitching to kids, as well as finding out what's Mass Challenge all about. We're going to be uh, talking with Mike Millard here, who is the new managing director for Mass Challenge here in Texas, as well as he's the founder of Pitch a Kid. So well, if you haven't heard about Startup Grind, Mass or Pitcher Kid, you're in for interesting conversation in Houston. So talk about what's happening in your city. Well, now it is time for us to talk to Jeff Shuey, who talks about the intersection of people and technology here on his Breakthrough Bite. So what I started to say, Jeff, is I'm going to go ahead and mute my mic and come back when we have 60 seconds for me to close the show. That way I get to listen and take notes on your last uh, your, your, your last Breakthrough Bite that you're going to be delivering for 2017.
3: Okay. Uh, I, yeah, you said last. I was like, wait a minute. Is there something you know that I don't know? But your last one for 2017, that makes sense. Did you get all that?
1: I did. I had already muted
3: my mic. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Sorry about that. It's it, it's. Yeah, I think I had feedback because I had my computer and my my uh, phone going. So I think it's all fixed now. But yeah, let's let's jump into it. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and get started. So uh, thanks, Michelle, for having me on again today. I know this is uh, the last one of 2017, and the framing post said, "What will machine learning do for you?" And it, it, I kind of made this as a primer or a primer, depending on how you say that. Um, I say primer, but the idea is, and you saw this in the framing post, is machine learning is definitely a hot topic today. There's a lot of people talking about it. There's a lot of people trying to figure out what they can do with it, but it's not new. So again, like the framing post showed, uh, there's, there's a lot of things that are happening from a Pure sort of front end machine learning side of things. I mean, what's happening with robotics, what's happening with autonomous electric vehicles, meaning AEVs, uh, which uh, I think Volvo and Ford and, and uh, Tesla and a few others have announced that they're going to release and they have released some parts of those already. And that's all the back end of what machine learning is and does. I mean, the bottom line is. And I have a description, and there are a couple of simple ones, and I'll, I'll write a follow-on post that I'll put up just after the call today or after the segment today. But the main thing is, what what is machine learning? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for your job? What does it mean for your future, and you know, potentially the future of, of uh, in a sense, humanity? But machine learning is a lot of different things. But what it really does is it focuses, and this is straight off the framing post. So it focuses on the development of computer programs that can access data and use it to learn for themselves. And this is not new. Uh, If you go back to the Alan Turing, he was trying to make it so that computers, you couldn't tell if you were talking to a computer, this was in the 50s, 60s, 1950s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And a few people, have, uh, more than a few people have tried to win that prize. For for almost as long as people have been automating machines, they've been trying to help them get smarter. In the olden days, the Jacquard loom, the loom that, that uh, Jacquard had created to make uh, rugs and uh, hangings and things like that, uh, so you can put patterns on them, make it faster and more efficient, that's a machine. I mean, arguably, it didn't necessarily have a lot of machine learning, except it had humans, I'll say, programming them, but A lot lot has happened since then. A lot of things have come forward since then, and certainly since what Marvin Minsky put forth back in the 50s and 60s on artificial intelligence and what are thinking machines and what is artificial intelligence, a lot has happened in the past five and ten years. And I'll throw this in now because I'll talk more about it later, but when quantum computing becomes the norm, all of this accelerates and in, in some senses gets a lot easier and in some senses gets a little bit harder because it's going to need a heck of a lot more data because the quantum computing could can do the processing much, much faster. But the bottom line on what machine learning is and does is it's hard. And as, as I said in the framing post, the edge conditions change. Um, not necessarily human ethics, but the way computers and computing can do things. So computing changes, expectations change, people want different things. And I'm gonna talk about industries in a minute and what people can do when they're starting to use machine learning, which is a component of artificial intelligence. But as I said in the framing post, there are risks. The whole idea of sentient or semi-sentient computing devices. I don't think we're gonna see a day where a Terminator is gonna come down and start doing bad things from Skynet. Um, but there's certainly that's something that's something that should be considered. And the the whole idea here is to talk about them from a work perspective, meaning what, what's going to happen with careers, what's going to happen in the future. And as I said in some of the bullet points, is there are things that we can't envision yet. There are things that we're not sort of, we aren't capable of sort of imagining. And there are things that we may have imagined from a purely idealistic standpoint But machine learning can actually help us get there. So, sure, humans have been able to calculate trajectories for satellites and getting to the moon and getting to Mars and beyond. And I just saw that one of the satellites, unfortunately I forgot the name now, um, is hitting its 40 or 41st year, and it's something like 2 billion miles away, yet it's still working. So that says a lot, Not, not a whole lot about machine learning per se, but a lot about the engineers back in the 1960s and 70s that were creating spacecraft to fly long distances. But there are things that machine learning will empower that we can't quite figure out yet, uh, but machine learning can help us get there. So it will absolutely change the way we work, the way we communicate, and the way we get things done. And as as I mentioned a minute ago, there are ethical considerations that need to be evaluated. And uh, there's a great cartoon from Dilbert or whatever, animated panel, whatever the the trendy word is for cartoons these days, but there's a great cartoon from Dilbert, and I'll put this in the framing post if I'm legally allowed to, Um, but basically a, a robot is talking to Dilbert, and he says, well, fortunately, we've got the three laws to protect us, and the robot says back to Dilbert, sure, like that's a thing. And I, I still think that's pretty funny because if you're a fan of Isaac Asimov where he coined the term the three laws of robotics, one of the things is that robots aren't supposed to hurt humans. And anyway, it's it's kind of a funny point, but jumping into a little bit more, some some of the things that are changing from and machine learning is gonna impact them, <clears throat> excuse me, in lots of different ways. Uh, certainly, from a blue collar perspective we 're already seeing that, and we 've been seeing that for years where robots and they 're actually getting a lot smarter now because machine learning helps them so blue collar jobs certainly uh, factory work type roles are changing, but so are white collar jobs so legal the legal field is a fairly obvious one a computer or a machine learning can go through thousands or tens of thousands of legal cases sometimes in seconds or fractions of seconds and doesn't really understand it, that's that's a secondary conversation, but it can go through and find a case that a lawyer or a judge or somebody else might need very, very quickly from tens of thousands of court cases, not just in the the legal jurisdiction where it happens to be in the county or state that it's in, but across the entire country. And it can also compare and contrast those with the rest of the world. And that's just the legal world. In the medical world, the idea where machine learning can help process and help help surgeons do more, better, faster, and in theory have robot, robotic surgeons because it can make decisions uh, that will certainly impact the health of the, the patient, but that's healthcare, legal, in the manufacturing space, there, there are a lot of changes coming. In the agricultural space, there are a lot of things coming, and machine learning, what, what it really needs is data and lots of it. So the way machine learning gets smarter is from the data flows that come into it. So there's sensors, which can be everything from beacons or traffic signals or uh, just the just temperature or noise types uh, type sensors that are capturing information and feeding it into it. So millions of bits of data coming into them every second of every day. Um, they also need databases, so things like actuarial tables. And then, of course, there, what happens with autonomous electric vehicles is they, they have computer vision. They use LiDAR, the, the radar that basically goes out and senses what's out there, whether it's a human, whether it's another car, whether it's a tree, whether it's a curb. So LiDAR and com- from computer vision is data that feeds in, but the machine still needs to know what what is going on and what it's supposed to do. So from a career standpoint, there are a couple I'm gonna rattle off a few, but there are there's one that has been around since 1969, but it's just starting to get some some additional attention now. It's the idea of mechatronics. So do you need a computer science degree to do machine learning? Sure, but it's not required. And where mechatronics fits in that is, you can have a more, I'll say, "quote unquote" traditional blue collar role where you might be helping a robot to be installed, or managed, or maintained. And it's not to be little that role. It's going to be, and it is a critical role for companies like Boeing when they manufacture airplanes, and when uh, Tesla makes their next vehicles, they'll hire mechatronics engineers that have a practical example. They can they can do the actually installation of the hardware and 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 basically debug what's going on with the machine the currently machine learning doesn't help them get there it helps a little bit but it doesn't actually go install things and put a bolt down or tighten a a tension rod so those are things that mechatronics does from a career perspective and that's where machine data can feed into that so you can see where something might be failing or it might be having an issue do you need a computer science degree not necessarily but it certainly doesn't hurt that's a career that will absolutely be impacted from a positive way for, for machine learning same thing with data scientists and they have new terms for them i think they're calling them data engineers now that's more of an hr thing um, but people that are installing and putting out monitoring so monitoring and capturing information drones, sensors and internet of things type scenarios people that that uh, understand the statistics and predictive analytics and then the one that i call is what i call sap roles and that is people that have roles, these are humans that have roles as sociologists, anthropologists, and psychologists. So as machine learning and, and robots and artificial intelligence takes over more and more of the world, which it will, is getting the human elements back into that. The critical, the three critical things people need to, I think, understand for machine learning and how to not, not, get, not get past it or, or bypass it, but to get along with it, is to have critical thinking skills communication skills, and collaboration abilities. And then the last three things I'll throw out, like I usually do, are the pros and cons and the return on investment. So the pros are massive data stores lead to massive discoveries. There are things that machines can process. They can process data, as you can guess, significantly faster and across multiple languages that we just can't. Uh, Also, machines learn. And they, they, are, they can be creative. So one thing we haven't seen yet, because we haven't maybe looked for it or maybe I'll say programmed them to, is they can create art and music in addition to the music uh, – sorry, art and music in addition to things they can do for medicine and machines and manufacturing. So those are the pros. Uh, the, pros. the cons are that you have to, we have to protect privacy. So uh, PII, personally identifiable information, is key, so data needs to be denormalized. Uh, or normalized, I should say, and PII removed, um, they, they don't necessarily understand empathy. So programming feelings is hard. So that's a con that needs to be addressed. And then there are standards. Governments, in particular, have conflicting interests. And one government may be willing to share information and others may not, or they may share it in, in different standards. And I don't mean just metric versus SAE standards, but the so standards need to be addressed from a con perspective. But the return on investment side is, trust trust the process in general, risk, or I should say reduce risk, and and the ability to have increased accuracy in almost everything we do. So I think what we need to watch for, as I mentioned, quantum computing, which will make the idea of machine learning significantly faster. And I think we can expect more robots, more Internet of Things, and that we'll have sensors everywhere.
1: Thank you, Jeff. So it's now time for me to be asking that question, How will you put what you've learned today into action? How will you be aware what interferes with your sales in 2017, like Don talked about? What will you do differently this week to tap into the leadership insights David shared, making it safe for your team to give you feedback and for them to be able to take psychological ownership? And what are the opportunities for you to apply machine learning for your business? I do want to share with you, because your feedback is important to the entire team, our intention has always been to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business. This is Michelle Price here, coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with you, a business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We will talk with you next Monday.